Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko. Welcome to another episode of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, 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 September the 23rd. 2022, and we're up to episode 3,173 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Expert Council Q&A show for the week. Remember, if you want to ask one of our experts a question, you can just send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC expert in the subject line, to make sure I don't have it filtered out in the spam or trash, or at least I can find it if it does. Give me your question in the council member you have before. Question in one sentence. Then hit return a couple times, put a space in there, then give me all the details you think we need. But give me the question boiled down to a single sentence. That way you know what you're asking, I know what you're asking. Council member knows what you're asking. Get a succinct answer. Trust me, I'm a professional. been doing this almost 15 years now, and this is the way. This is the way. Got a great lineup for you guys today, Dr. Paul, Tim Toolman, Cook, Pat Rorman, Jeff Lott and Nicole Sauce, Jessica Dixie Mills, and me, myself, and I commenting on a quote by Bill Mollison. We'll get to all of that in a moment. Right now, I want to remind you, this is the this is the final hour. Cinderella is turning into a pumpkin at 9.30 in the morning tomorrow, Saturday, the 24th. What am I talking about? Of course, TSP Fall 22. That's right, tomorrow morning at 0, 9.30, Central Standard Time. Not your time zone unless it is Central. you got to do your adjustment. I will drop in the Telegram group and the Telegram channel a link. That link will be the link for you to sign up for the fall workshop. If you're not there, you shall be square. You will not get in. I promise you that's just the way that it shall be. Um, I don't do this to market it. I do this so that people don't get mad at me. I say it over and over as we lead up to it. I don't really put a huge marketing push behind it. If you look at other workshops and things like that, there's much bigger marketing pushes behind them. I do this because every year people don't get in and they're upset. And I just want you to have a fair, fair shot at the jump ball. 0930 tomorrow, set two alarms if you want to come. Be there early, be ready. There'll be a lot of chatter going on and... Uh, if you haven't watched the video yet that shows you like what the form's like and the process is, I'd do that because the faster you get through it, the more likely you are to get in. Uh, next up, real quick, I want to remind you again about something I mentioned to you yesterday. Paul Wheaton's Rocket Mass Oven uh, Instructionals. Two and a half hours of video. It's very, very cool. Now here's how this, this, this came to be here in our, our community. Paul is a fanatic about rocket mass heaters and everything, rocket mass everything, rocket, rocket, rocket. And he really wants to push his rocket mass heater portfolio to anybody and everybody to listen. It's it's his Kool-Aid, and I mean it in a good way. But I know the big thing that prevents this community from getting that that information, if you don't already have it, and that is that we look at our homes and we're like, I'm going to put a rocket mass heater in my house. My wife won't let me, whatever. The codes won't let me, etc. And I think it's an amazing, interesting technology, but the average person living in the average home isn't going to do it. They're not going to. And no matter how much he believes that you will anyway, you probably won't. So you're like, I don't need this. So I said, look, rocket heating technology. 
is amazing. There's a lot of things you can do with it. Bring me one thing that would interest anybody in my audience. One simple thing without all the other stuff attached to it and make it affordable. And I was like, maybe he'll go away and come back with something completely different that will actually appeal to the audience. So he comes back with rocket ovens. And I literally, without reading it, without looking into it, because I really hadn't looked into these, emailed Bo, his assistant, back and said, I'll run it, but it won't sell. That was, that was my initial response. I'm telling you the truth here. I, I can show you a screenshot of the email if you want to see it. And then I'm like, well, maybe I'm not being fair. So I dug into it. I'm probably going to build one this winter. He has the final product in his innovators' events from, from, from all this work. No welding, inexpensive materials, no experience necessary. Anybody can build one, and you can keep it outside. And it's, well, it's portable. So if you move, and the person that you're selling the house to doesn't want it, or you want to keep it, you just take it with you. And it works amazingly. And one of the things that I've always had problems with with permaculturists, uh, when they get into their PDCs and all the stuff like that, they get married to ideas versus understanding design science, and they try to like latch onto a thing that you have to have for it to be a permaculture, or if you don't have that thing, it's not a permaculture, like an herb spiral, or like a cob oven. And these mud ovens and cob ovens, they are cool tech where they work well, but they have some real limitations. This rocket, this rocket oven tech that Paul's folks have developed, you can build it anywhere, you can use it anywhere, it really works, it's cheap to build, and the information you need to be able to build it yourself is 10 freaking measly bucks. So if you're on the email list, it's in there today. If you're not, you can check it out in the show notes for today's episode. You'll see it there as well. It's definitely something to check out. At least take a look at it. See what it does and decide if this is something you want to know how to build. Because talk about a security thing. Being able to use scraps of sticks and twigs to cook outdoors, no matter what happens to the grid, that alone is worth 10 bucks. And it's just a cool freaking thing. You got to check it out. You got to see what I'm talking about. Again, they're called Rocket Ovens, 10 bucks, two and a half hours of full instructional video, how the product was developed, and then how to build the product. So all the previous versions that led up to the final version and then how to build the final version. Ten bucks. All right, with that, let's go ahead and dive on into it. So leading off today, Dr. Ron Paul, uh, we have a, a, a three, three bullet points from them again. And uh, so first we're going to hear from Dr. Paul on how basically the two parties are, the two political parties are twins beneath the surface. Then Dan and Dr. Paul, Dan McAdams and Dr. Paul will team up on how we are literally at this point at the precipice of freaking World War III over Ukraine and Russia. While there is absolutely no natural national security interest here whatsoever. This is insanity. And Chris Rossini will talk about, well, what do you do if you have $31 trillion that you need to spend and you just don't have it? We'll hear from all of those guys and we'll be back with another segment. That two parties uh, exist, but on the big issues are the ones that I make a point. Uh, they don't, they aren't a whole lot different, uh, you know, because they they don't start from a position of a uh, of an individual liberty, private property, a free market situation. They they talk with intervention. 
less interventions with more. But if you have if you have a system where you just have less intervention, you still believe in intervention. And what happens in government, it always grows. And we've been doing that, you know, for a hundred years. But let me tell you, it's it's running out of steam because we're running out of money, we're running out of wealth, and we're running out of freedom. And the antagonism is growing. So let's just hope that I'm completely wrong, that elections don't change things very much. I do know that a lot of people are very hopeful that uh uh, you know, that uh, our borders might become secure <laughs> and, and uh, th- things like that could be improved. Uh, and just just getting rid of some of the regulations that were totally unnecessary in the uh, energy field might be a big help to us. But ultimately, you know, it's bipartisan. Uh, they generally, both sides support the war, the financing on the wel- welfare and the warfare. They support the Federal Reserve. Uh, there's only a few who really care about the deficit, and they really understand why deficits are very, very dangerous. And that's why it's so important that we can help people to understand what personal liberty, property rights, free trade, these kind of things that solve the problem by the people making the decision rather than having the politicians making the decision. Because all you have to do is say, Ron, I don't think so. We need them at times. Yeah, like we needed them to really help us get through COVID infection. That's a good example. It's one of those things that people are and will wake up. uh, It's our job. And others' job is to present the case for liberty because it's such a positive thing and it will answer so many of the questions, but it still boils down to having a society that's made up of people that have a little bit of moral concern about their own activities. You know, it's not to approve or disapprove of what's happening, but we do have to face some serious facts. And we've talked about it on this show continuously, but starting in 2014 with the U.S. back to coup, and then for the subsequent eight years, the U.S. and NATO were shipping in weapons, were training Ukrainian military, and they were all training to do one thing, which is defeat Russia. There is no country on earth that would not respond in some way or the other to the fact that their neighbors were being armed and trained by hostile powers overseas with the intent of overthrowing that country's government. No country would react differently. No country would just ignore it and let it go. Now, it's been eight years you might say for the U.S. side, well, maybe it's important enough. It, if it, why would you do something like this? Why would you try to do this? Well, if it was is important enough to our national interest, critical national interest, it might make sense for us to do what we did. If we really were facing an existential threat from Russia, it might make sense to do what we did over the past eight years in arming and training Ukraine. But I would argue very forcefully that it absolutely meant nothing, zero, to our national interest, whether the eastern part of Ukraine would rather join Russia, would rather join uh, Uganda or whatever. It doesn't mean anything. So we're basically on the precipice of World War III, and we're staring over for no appreciable benefit to our own security, on the contrary. And I think that's the point to be made, is it is uh, very important to us, but uh, not because it's to provide security for us. It's be, it's destroying our our security and doing exactly the opposite. They're just blinded to what they're doing. And uh, if they can get away with uh, lying and innuendos and propagandas and keep this thing going, pretending 
it's always for national security purposes. I mean, how many times do they need it? You know, uh, it's, it was pretty bad when the Speaker of the House went to China and talked about our national security and our Constitution and our liberties and all, the, all that stuff. That, that sort of gives me a sick feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I don't believe her. No, I know. I don't, I don't think many people do, actually. The government's debt is approaching uh, $31 trillion. And uh, what we want to say is, you know, debt matters because we're finding out from the CBO that the fastest growing part of the whole federal budget is interest payments on the debt. And as interest rates go rise higher, you know, those interest payments are going to skyrocket on the government. And, you know, this is all predictable. This is how debt works. You know, we're trained as Americans. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It matters. Uh, but when government wants to spend... They have a propaganda apparatus ready to go. It's the same pattern repeated over and over, year after year. And anybody that, you know, pick a spending package, and you could just point out, you know, that's not the role of government to do that. It's not going to work. And uh, it'll make the problem worse, which is usually what happens when government spends money. But the propaganda kicks in, and it's very predictable. First, they'll tell you, oh, you're against you know, the poor, you're against, the, you know, the Ukrainians. And then they'll tell you what you do care about. You only care about yourself. You only care about the rich. And then finally you'll get labeled, you know, and there are a million names out there. Just pick one. And, and we went, this with, went through this with COVID, with the vaccines. You know, you're against the community if you didn't get it. You only care about yourself. And, and you're selfish and you're going to die if you don't get it. So it's the same pattern, and this is how they spend money. And once they spend it, you'll forget all about it, and the next uh, spending package comes in, and the same process just repeats itself 31 trillion times. So this is where we find ourselves, Dr. Paul. This cannot last forever, this game of loot the taxpayer. But as of today, it's still going. Yeah, um, I want to actually hit on something that seems totally unrelated to this, but it, it goes back to Dr. Paul's opening statements there about there's not really much difference between the political parties. Both political parties infinitely claim to be for small businesses. The, the Democrats do, the Republicans do. Every single time they get up and give one of their stump speeches or whatever, blah, 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 small business, they might talk about a billion different things, but blah, 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 pro-small business comes out. Neither party is pro-small business. Do you know what a pro-small business position would be? Any business below this number of employees and or revenue is completely exempt from all federal regulations. Does not apply. Does not apply. What if they're killing people with cyanide in a restaurant? I'm pretty sure that would violate the, the law of the state in which that business existed. Any business under four million, five million bucks. What is a small business? I don't know. Pick a number. Any any number you want. Anything under this? How many employees under that? Not exempt from some. Exempt from all. Federal government has no business whatsoever. That would be a pro small business position. That would give small businesses. In their individual niches, their little micro niches that they have, both geographic and product-based, service-based, a, a huge advantage over large companies that, that could shoulder the cost of regulation but would have to contend with it. There's a pro-small business position. Absolutely nobody, nobody, not Justin Amish, not Ted Cruz, not Thomas Massey, not whoever you pull from the right, 
not Bernie Sanders, etc., from the left. No one you pull is like the exception to the mainstream. Has that position. Nobody in the mainstream has that position. No one on the other side of it. No one. I have never heard a federal, uh, a federal representative, senator, or House of Representatives member ever espouse the idea, why don't we just say that all these federal regulations do not apply to small businesses? And then let's define what a small business is. So when we say, well, I'm pro-small business, we know what the hell you're talking about. What does that mean? Does that mean my business? Does it mean a local restaurant franchise that has like three restaurants? Are they a big business? Or are they a small? What is a small? Is a gym, an independently owned single gym, a small business that you shut down and find? Right? Who is a small business? Let's if you're going to use a freaking word, let's define what it means. Ask any of these people. Can define specifically to me, uh, their uh, senator, uh, representative, what have you, ass clown of the day. What is a small business? They have no idea. They use a, they use a phrase. Small business is a phrase, not a word. They use a phrase all the time that has never once been defined by our government to be specific as to what it means. It means it sounds good and you're stupid and you'll believe it's a vote for my side. That's what it means. They're the same. All of you people, you need to vote, Jack. You need to vote. For what? Show me with math and show your work where my vote will matter this election or any previous election sitting right here in Fort Worth, Texas, or leave me alone, and then show me under the hood where there's actually a difference. Where there's actually a difference in how the individual is treated. And then maybe I'll care. But I don't. Because I consider them all traitors. All of them, even the ones that are much better than the others, they're all traitors. Because the, the, the entity that is to be most protected by the Constitution that all of them swore an oath to is you and me. And not you and me. You and big old space me and the other person. That would be the individual. And every time they take an act that compromises the rights and freedoms and liberties of the individual, counter, counter to that because they seek better collective outcomes for their agenda, they are violating the Constitution they took an oath to. They are traitors. And at best they belong in an orange jumpsuit. And yes, all of them. Every single one of them. POTUS on down to mostly local dog catchers. You go ahead and vote. Pick, pick your trader from two. Tell me how it works out for you. We're going to move on. Something a little more, a little more practical. A little less blood pressure raising. I guess it could raise your blood pressure. What if you're, you know, mowing and you're, you're mowing lawns and you have particularly tough grasses and you're constantly ending up with the old mower blades? What, what do we do about this? Have they, have mower blades just declined? I know this is totally different. That's what we give you variety here. The question is basically, are modern mower blades such crap steel that they're now disposable items? Tim Toolman Cook has his take on that. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back to answer another question for the expert council, so let's dive right in. This week's question comes from Stephen. And he says, I mow about six acres a month on my zero turn. It's a mix of Baha'i and Bermuda grass, which makes my blades dull quickly. 
I've been sharpening the blades on a bench grinder, but can't restore them because the edge gets rounded and dull so quickly from the Baha'i grass. What is your method and tools used to sharpen lawnmower blades? Has steel quality gone to pot so that the blades have become a disposable item nowadays? <laughs> well, that could be the case as far as the steel quality goes. I used to have a co-worker who would buy a whole bunch of chainsaw chains, and when one got dull, he'd just throw it out because he never wanted to learn how to sharpen. Not a great idea. Anyway, first off, you asked about my process for sharpening. I've used bench grinders in the past, but I find them a bit slow, and they're a lot harder and a lot more work to get a good edge. So this is what I do. Now, you know, take it for what it's worth. There's two options. Number one, if you have a bench vise, clamp it into that. I like to put it flat on my workbench at about a 45 degree angle with the cutting edge sticking out over the side of the bench. Then I clamp it down with a C-clamp. Make sure it's good and sturdy. <laughs> put on your safety gear because I've learned that the hard way. And I use an angle grinder with a grinding blade or a grinding wheel on it. Now, careful not to overheat the blade because you can soften up and damage the steel. But what you do is... Count your strokes. So as you are passing along that blade, you know, always do the same direction, always do kind of with the same pressure and count your strokes, you know, 15, 20, 25, however many it takes. Then as you get a nice sharp edge, you're going to round over the bottom just a little bit. So before you flip the blade over, just make a quick pass under the bottom to get rid of that little curl of metal that may have developed there. Flip it over, do the same thing. Count your strokes on the other side. The reason you're doing that is so that your blade is balanced. There's nothing worse than having an unbalanced blade. When you put it back in your mower, it's going to end up vibrating and it can wreck the mower. So count your strokes on the other side. If you did it right, it should be fairly well balanced. Now, I have a nail in the wall in my shop. Take the blade with a center hole, put it up on the nail, and if it sits perfectly level, you're good. If one side drops a little bit, Sharpen that a few more times until you get it to sit perfectly level. Now, you can buy kind of a conical pyramid type thing. It's like a pin that the pyramid sits on or the cone sits on. Then you put your blade on top of that, and that will help. But a nail has always worked great for me. So that is my process for sharpening blades. Pretty simple. It's worked really well for me over the years. Now, a few tips for Baha'i grass. Number one, obviously use a very, very sharp blade. It's thick, it's stocky, it's the type of stuff, if anybody else has done it, you end up mowing over it and it ends up leaving kind of a, you know, a path of thick stock behind. So use a very sharp blade, which you know. Don't use a mulching blade. Use a standard straight cutting blade because you want it to just go right through and knock it down the best you can. Stick with OEM blades from the manufacturer for the most part. They seem to be the best quality. That's what I've run into. I can't say for sure. You know, I do have a local rental place that has really thick, really heavy steel blades that I love. So shop around, try a few different blades. But for the most part, OEM blades made for your mower from your manufacturer should be decent quality <laughs> most of the time. Now, here's something else. Look for a blade with high lift. Now, if Someone out there doesn't know what high lift is, that's totally fine. If you've noticed over the years, lawnmower blades on the back side of the cutting edge, so you've got the cutting edge and then the flat side of the back of the blade has kind of a 45 degree on some of them. 
it's kind of like a, a wave that comes up. And that is designed to help push the grass out of the side discharge. That gets it out, clears up the cutting area. So look for something with a very pronounced high lift on the back. That will help some as well. Now, one more thing you can try with really thick or, um, you know, the Baha'i type grass, because that is just nasty old stuff. You can try what they call a negative deck pitch. So what that is, is having the, see, first off, you need to figure out how you adjust the height and the levelness of your mowing deck. And if you can figure that out, you want to have the back side of the deck an eighth of an inch lower than the front. Did a lot of reading on that just to find out because it's something I may need to try out in the future. But that sounds like it could be the, you know, a last ditch effort to help. But a good sharp blade, a straight cutting blade with high lift and possibly a negative deck pitch hopefully will help. And all of these things will help with really thick, heavy grass. Just so you know, not just Baha'i grass, but a bunch of different things. So guys, that's it for me this month. If you want to support what I'm up to, just launched the Patch of the Month Club, which is really cool. We had um, our latest patch was been prepping since Y2K based on those Best Buy stickers that used to be on the computers back in 1999. $10 a month, $100 a year. You can sign up at patchofthemonth.co. And don't forget about the workshop podcast three times weekly live, 7 p.m. Mountain Time, Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday. So that's it for me this week, guys. As always, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So next up, we're going to stick with mowing grass. But without... What if you're going old school? What if you're going to get one of them gold Grim Reaper looking things called a scythe? And you're going to go out there and you're going to cut stuff with a scythe. Now, I've been recently asked about this from a brand perspective. And, and my response was, I have one. Mine is a European design. You keep that in mind with what you're about to hear from Patrick. I bought it at like a prepper convention like eight years ago. I don't even know who makes it, and I don't care. But there's 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 nobody making an actual scythe today. To my knowledge, it's like a Chinese hack shop. There's such a specialized thing that they're generally made very high quality. And I would say you, I have had a lot of folks tell me they have found some really great scythes for a couple bucks going like estate sales and stuff like that. They're out there, and they pretty much last as long as you maintain them. But there are two distinctive styles, and that actually does matter. Okay, There's a European style, Austrian style, and there's an American style scythe. If you're choosing between the style, which would you choose and why? Now, somebody that knows about cutting stuff, Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. So I sent this one over to him, and here's what he had to say about it. Hey guys, this is Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's Expert Counsel of the Week. Today's question comes from Roy. Roy says, what are the different, the, sorry, what are the significant differences in the blade edge for a European scythe and an American scythe and how does that affect sharpening them? Details. I'm planning to buy a hand scythe to start hand mowing my fields, barnyard, and rugged edge areas. There's two major styles of size, the American and European, or Australian. Austrian, sorry. Which seem similar enough in operation, but quite different in sharpening methods and requirements. The European side seems to be much lighter, 
but requires more equipment and time with peening and sharpening. Additionally, there are different blade designs for mowing grassy fields versus rough, overgrown hillsides. I will likely need both, a mowing blade as well as a brush or dish, ditch blade. My major concern with the two is how much time and how difficult will the sharpening process be. I really like the European style because they claim to be less than three pounds in weight. However, it requires peening in addition to sharpening. The American style is heavier in weight and doesn't require peening, but might be more difficult to actually get a quality edge to mow properly. I'm really leaning towards the European style for its weight and seemingly quality cutting, but, cons but concerned about how much time and skill will be required to keep its edge suitable. Can you shed some light to help me make a sound decision? Thanks. Respectfully, Roy from West Virginia. Well, I actually, uh, when I got this question, I reached out to Roy and uh, sent him some links to people who are experts in scythes. Um, I own a scythe, and I've used a scythe. I've peened scythes and sharpened them. However, I would not say that I'm an expert in any means. I would say that it is, a, it is very enjoyable using a scythe, but there is a learning curve, and it is going to require practice and time, and there's a reason that we use weed eaters and lawn mowers and all the technology that we have today. However... If you are looking for something that is going to work when you can't get gasoline or, you know, it's going to work no matter what situation you're in, then a scythe is an excellent tool. Um, <clears throat> I actually broke out my scythe and peened it the other day and sharpened it and proceeded to cut myself with it. <laughs> it was my own fault, but that's just something that is going to happen when you're careless with sharp objects. Um, one thing that I've found over time is the older I get and the more understanding I have, the easier things become. So when I was young, I tried to sharpen a knife. I failed. Later on, I tried again, and I failed. And the older you get, as long as you just keep on trying, sooner or later, you're going to be successful. And I would say the same was for what happened for me with peening, is I, I understood the process, although the first time or two that I peened aside, I was not successful. Um, I would say that the more you do it, the more efficient you'll become, the better you'll get at it. And it is a skill. It's a skill that you're going to have to practice and do. And it's not going to just be go perfect the first time that you try it. So I would definitely encourage getting a scythe. I like the European style. Um, the one advantage with peening is 
when you sharpen a blade, you're just grinding away material. When you peen that edge, you're just moving the material and reshaping that edge. So it actually should last longer because you're not just grinding away the material. Um, one advantage to a heavier blade for, you know, say American or whatever is the momentum, you know, as you swing that scythe, the weight, yeah, is more to hold, but it's also going to give it that inertia to travel through some, you know, brushier areas. Um, so, you know, same reason you have a truck and you have a compact car. One's good for efficiency. The other's good for just barreling through some mess. So the European, I think, where it really shines is, um, you know, grass and easy cutting. And, you know, they have some heavier ones and stuff for, like, the brush. But, um, you know, it's going to be one of those things that you're going to get out there, you're going to try, and you just have to see for yourself which one you prefer over the other. So thanks for the question. I hope that it helps. Um, I'll go ahead and include a link or two to some other experts on sides if uh, Jack wants to add those to the show notes in case anybody else wants to look more into it. Um, thanks for the question. If you guys got any questions, feel free to shoot them to me, and I'll do my best to answer them. This has been Patrick Rorman with MT Knives. Have a great day. So here's my additions on this. I've found two things that sides are really good at, and one they're intended for and one they're really not, but they're still pretty good at it, though it's, it's really hard on the blade. So the first thing, and this is, I think, what people need to understand, for true mowing with a scythe, a scythe is not made to replace what we call a weed eater or an edge trimmer today. That's not what they're for. And a lot of people seem to think that's what they're for, and they're actually terrible at it. And it's really bad for a scythe blade when you run it into, like, the concrete foundation of a home or the foundational block of a deck. And they don't swing well in those environments. You can use them. And the second way I'm going to give you, actually, it's, it's kind of how you use them to do this. But what they were made for is mowing fields that were wide open. So you could take these broad strokes. And it's a very martial arts-like movement when it's done properly. I've seen a lot of videos of people using them. They're kind of like using their arms and they're hunched over. If you're using a scythe right, you should be in almost a horse stance if you know martial arts, and you should be swinging your hips, and you get these huge, broad strokes. And with that, a sharp, well-tuned scythe, properly sized to the person, can, can mow a lot really fast and really efficiently, especially grasses or remaining straws after harvest of grain heads that are much taller than what you would comfortably mow with a mower. And those are the things it does good. Broad open fields, tall. The second thing, though, is I occasionally get areas on my property that are very difficult to mow with a lawnmower. And they get a lot of large stem, broad, uh, broadleaf weeds and stuff like amaranths and stuff. What I'll often do is I'll go in there with my scythe, and I'll do exactly the opposite of what I said. I'm using it more like if you're using one, you get up against the thing, you kind of have to like you place it down on the ground, you don't swing it, and you kind of pull it back. And uh, you kind of just cut those things at the bottom. 
What I'll often do in a place that's gotten overgrown like that, I'll go in there and I'll drop all the big stuff. And I'll, then I'll, you know, I'll wait a day or two, and I'll, as all those leaves start to dry up and kind of collapse, and you can see, then you look for any junk that's in there that you left around, like rocks or pieces of pipe or something like that. And then if the area is suitable for it, then you bring the push mower in or the riding mower in to where if you had done that initially, things have kind of grown up, you're not going to get a very efficient mow, and you might be like slamming your mower blade into a rock. And no matter what Tim Toolman told you about how to sharpen a mower blade, when it hits a piece of limestone the size of a bowling ball, that's a bad thing. And so those are the two areas that I use my scythe for, kind of broad, acre, broad open area, which, by the way, I usually don't because it's just so easy to do with a lawnmower, but it's good to have it. And sometimes we'll have areas that kind of, like, this little area kind of outgrew everything around it. It's really not time to mow, mow yet. And I'll go grab the scythe, and I'll take that down. That creates those new branch outs on the forbs and the grasses, and then the ducks and the geese really like them. So there, there's more than one way to do this, but I think it's understand understand the limitations of, of them. And if, if you're doing it for small areas unless it's kind of like a specific reason, like I gave you, it's not the best tool. I mean, this was designed to be used as a harvesting tool, is really what it was designed to be used of. All right, let's take another one. This one, uh, Jeff Lawton will talk to us now about ground cover in compacted clay soils, specifically for tropical climates, but I think this will help you no matter where you are, is you just think of the, the, the thing that works the same. And specifically, this ground has been compacted by overuse of uh, animals. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from South Africa, where I'm teaching a permaculture design certificate course. Um, we have a question here from Tanzania, which is also Africa, 53 kilometers inland. And um, they've got a property where it's uh, pretty heavy clay, uh, tropics, um, it's been compacted by animals, and um, they want ground cover suggestions. And they want to put in patches of, of food forest and isolate the animals off areas as they establish. Um, you, you might have to actually decompact the soil a bit to make it go a bit quicker. That might mean that at the right time of year of moisture, or if you can make it a little bit moist, you can use a broad fork just to prise the ground open and, and make a, a little bit of a, not turn it over so much, but actually like lift it and crack it. Um, so you just allow root penetration. Um, ground covers like cowpea will be seasonal and, um, and give you nitrogen over a, over a summer. Uh, that's cowpea vignus sinensis. But you also got uh, sorghum, which would be quite common. It'd give you carbon. What you're after in the end is a perennial long term. The, the ultimate tropical perennial ground cover is pinto peanut. It's a ground cover uh, prostrate perennial legume. So, wow, that's great. But it, it is a bit sophisticated. It takes a little while to get established. You could start some to start with and then um, uh, get faster growth on top. Sweet potato is actually a perennial and can last as a ground cover. Um, and easy to establish from cut-ins. Pinto peanut cut-ins too, so they're all that quite easy. But then you've also got Wadelia, uh, sometimes called Singapore daisy. Um, they'll all be eaten by cattle or, or stock. Um, Pinto peanut's pretty solid and flat, so you won't, won't kill it uh, with, with cattle. Um, sweet potato or... or 
get Etten right off mostly, but come back from short stems uh, attached to the roots and tubers. And Wadelia is pretty hardy, but it is a daisy, and that's good for calcium. And you can, uh, cattle can eat that right off when it comes back. Uh, they're all good for growing fruit trees and food forests um, from and out of because it just controls the ground um, cover but also reduces evaporation and collects organic matter from the air and any water flows um, that all work really well to grow trees. Um, and there's many uh, forage trees because there is an inquiry about the forage trees for cattle um, and, and there are many, there are there are many tropical forage trees. Of course, Leukina works very well and it's 38% green leaf protein. But one of the wonderful trees of the tropics is Gamelina. Um, um, sorry, um, Glyrosidia. Glyrosidia. Uh, Glyrosidia um, is a beautiful legume, uh, a beautiful flower, great forage. And it also grows from cuttings, which makes it really easy to establish. So there you go, and um, um, I think it will be uh, a nice, fast-growing tropical system. Next up, let's talk a little bit about canning potatoes and the severe risk of any potato peel being on a canned potato. I'd never even heard of this before. Of course, I don't really can potatoes. But I found this really fascinating, and I also think that This is another example of a massive exaggeration of risk, which by the time you hear the end of Nicole's segment, I think she is pretty much in agreement with. Howdy, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with another expert counsel question from Victor. Victor asks, Nicole, how critical is it to remove every single tiny piece of skin when pressure canning potatoes? I just finished my first batch. And guys, I'm going to summarize so it doesn't sound boring like I'm reading. He finished his first batch, was really careful about peeling the potatoes, pressure canned it. It's the next day. He's looking in there and seeing brown spots that are either a couple places he may have missed the skins or oxidation. And he wonders if he can just boil the potatoes on the way back out of the jar and not worry about it. And also wants to know if, hey, will it get hot enough in a frying pan if I just go straight into the frying pan for the potatoes? Well, Victor, here's the deal. You're probably right. It's probably oxidation, but the only way to know that is to open the jar and look. And then, of course, if you open the jar right now, touch it with your hands, look at it, and then lick your fingers, and there's any bacteria on that, bad idea. So if you do that, look at them, wash your hands and all of that if you touch the potatoes so that you do not have an unfortunate incident. As far as what to do with the potatoes from here, if there are a few specks of skin in there, let's back up and ask why does the National Center for Home canning or home food preservation want you to peel those potatoes. It's because of our friend botulism, who we discussed recently, so I won't go deeply into it. But basically, botulism lives in the soil. And if you eat dirt, you don't get it because you have acid in your stomach that will kill it. However, if one of those bacteria who is more likely to be on the skin of a potato than on the inside flesh of a potato, if one of those bacteria comes to life in your jar because for whatever reason your pressure canner gauge was off or something, it didn't kill any, everything in there, then it poops out a toxin that is the nerve, a nerve agent that makes you stop remembering how to breathe and die a horrible, painful death. So 
What I would do in this case and in all cases with any canned potatoes is A, peel them. B, if there are a few specks left behind, realize, you know what, that's why we pressure can them and that's why we boil things that are low acid on the way back out of the jar just as a hedge just in case. And if you think about it, if you had left the peels on and cleaned them really well, the deal is there's more likely to be bacteria in the botulism bacteria in the jar before you start canning. That's why they tell you to remove it. At the same time, they are giving you processing times that in theory would have killed that even if it came in on the skin. So I wouldn't worry about it too much. I would boil it on the way out of the jar and I would under no circumstances in any situation take low acid food of any kind, green beans, potatoes, squash, okra that's not pickled, which would turn into mush. Like any of those things, I would not meet. I would not take those things straight out of the jar and straight into the frying pan, whether or not the peel is there. You need to boil it for five minutes first, at least. The The official recommendation is 15 minutes. Like, So I called the lab and I decided five minutes was within my my margin of what I'm happy to do because it will certainly raise the center of those potatoes high enough to break down that toxin if it's there. I hope this helps you move forward. What you can do if you're going to be frying potatoes for breakfast out of the jars is take it, boil it, drain it, fry it. That's what I would do. The other thing you might consider is look around at how you might create a root cellar environment and store some of those potatoes fresh because you can you can keep potatoes into March here in Tennessee if you have a root cellar. I don't know what part of the world you're in. So you can also look at other storage options besides canned and then have the ones from the root cellar for your morning fried potatoes and the ones in the jar for mashed and for other things. Hopes this helps, guys. If you have any questions, get them to Jack with TSPC Expert in the subject line. And don't forget, you can get awesome fresh roasted coffee over at hollerroast.com. And you're going to want to keep your eyes peeled because we have a couple of new things we're launching for the holiday this season. And I hope to see you at Self-Reliance Festival October 1 and 2. Make it a great week. So I can just see this as being one of the many things that my old Ukrainian grandmother uh, that we hear about in canning at this point would have just thrown her hands up, turned around, walked away, and not even answered. Just just made a sound that only Ukrainian grandmothers can make. It's not a word. It's a sound. It sounds sort of like chrump, but it's it's, it's different. It's it, it, I, I can't do it. I'm not a Ukrainian grandmother. I am the grandson of one. Um, this idea that if there was a tiny piece of peel, I, I think what you need to understand about botulism, the bacteria versus botulism, the toxin is that one creates the other and one is not the other. Botulism is a bacterium and when it gets in a low acid, uh, low oxygen environment uh, for long enough with combined with moisture, it, it, it multiplies and it produces the toxin. I think Nicole did a pretty good job explaining that. If we boil something that has botulism toxin in it for a very brief period of time, we boil off the botulism toxin. And the fact that the bacterium is not killed by boiling itself is irrelevant. You are probably breathing botulism right now. It is one of the most common bacterium on the planet. That's why there's such a high probability it would be in the soil because it's probably on the surface of your desk. It's probably on your iPhone or your Android or whatever it is you use. I'm serious. It's pretty much everywhere. So 
it, the idea that, well, because there was a piece of peel, it could have gotten into the jar, man. Then there was, there was probably, like the button call alluded to, there's probably botulism in the jar anyway. And so that's why we pressure canned it at like 240 degrees for whatever period of time it said to do it. And I just think this is an overblown BS risk that I wouldn't worry about. Um, I find this completely implausible for it to be a problem. That's just my take on it. Um, but again, I can just see my Ukrainian grandmother. Grandma, we can't eat these potatoes because there's a piece of peel. <sighs> And then just basically starve. Right? I'm going to make potato soup with it for you. It's going to be boiled. Shut up and eat it, or I will twist your ear is what I would have gotten. Moving on, let's talk about finding a, a good insulative quilt or pad for hammock camping. I think a lot of people, they hear about hammock camping. It sounds like a really great idea. I'm going to go hammock camp, man. I'm going to get my hammock, and if it's cold out, I'll have a sleeping bag, and everything will be good. Man, having the underside of your ass open to the air when it is cold outside will pull freaking body heat off you, and you can end up very cold in weather that ain't that cold sleeping in a hammock without insulation. And while Jessica is not uh, heavy on hammock camping, she's done quite a bit. She's worked with a lot of people that have, uh, having been on so many trails so long like she does. And uh, she has some great resources as well in her segment for you that I have links to in the show notes as well. And so let's hear from Jessica Mix Dixie Mills on hammock camping. Hey, TS peers, Jessica Dixie Mills here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land to answer a question from Daniel. Daniel says, please recommend a hammock underquilt that is suitable for backpacking, brand universal, and can accommodate temperatures down to the teens. Between my volunteering with scouts and being an avid hunter, I go camping on average one to two times a month. I've started shifting away from tents and toward hammock camping. I live in North Carolina, so during the warmer months, this made sleeping outdoors much more tolerable. I find sleeping in a hammock much more comfortable as far as impact on my body versus sleeping on the ground. And also really like how light and compact my hammock setup can be when backpacking. I'm considering continuing with the hammock through the fall and winter months, but I know the airflow underneath the hammock can cause a major liability when the temperatures drop. I'm generally a hot-natured person, but I think once temps get below about 50 degrees at night, I will need to take steps to keep hypothermia away. I have had underquilts recommended to me by several other hammock camping enthusiasts. I have plenty of ground pads, both foam and insulated inflatable, that could go inside the hammock as well, so I'm pretty open regarding potential solutions. I'm a big fan of Jack's phrase, always be frugal, never be cheap. So with that in mind, I don't want to pick up the lower price item from China only to be disappointed, but I don't want to drop $200 on something because it has a better marketing team. Thanks, Daniel. Well, Daniel, this is a great question, and yeah, I think Jack's phrase uh, definitely applies to backpacking gear. It can be pricey, you know, you, you can be more frugal or you can just get the bougiest uh, thing if you want to, but I would say with how often you're going camping and being in the outdoors, that it really makes sense for you to go on and invest in something that's going to be lightweight but also function very well out in the field. Now, let me just say, I don't have near as much hammocking experience as tenting experience, but I have 
certainly spent some time in a hammock. And for those of y'all who are listening in who don't know, a lot of people these days are backpacking with hammocks, especially those of us who start to get a little older and our joints don't appreciate sleeping on the ground and climbing in and out of the tent. And there are even folks who have had like back surgery that couldn't backpack anymore in a tent because sleeping on the ground was so uncomfortable, but they've been able to get back out with hammock camping. So I think it's awesome you are making that transition. I want to recommend um, Shug's backpacking channel on YouTube. You may have seen it, or hammocking more specifically. He He's a big hammock enthusiast, and uh, he even has a book out called The Ultimate Hang. I believe that's his book anyway. But I'll send Jack um, the link to his channel and also a link to The Ultimate Hang book. Um, just so you have those as resources or if anyone else is interested in hammock camping. But to answer your question about a sleeping pad and under quilt, as far as a sleeping pad goes, I tried using an inflatable sleeping pad in a hammock and honestly, it just kind of killed the comfort of the hammock. Having that flexibility that just kind of bends with your body, it made things more rigid. And as far as pressure points, it kind of felt like I was sleeping on the ground in an inflatable sleeping pad. Now, A foam sleeping pad can certainly work much better. You know, it's more pliable and it will definitely help add insulation. But I wouldn't just go with that. I tried that when I first started my through hike of the Appalachian Trail. And anything that hung off the foam pad was freezing. (laughs) So if my knee was off the foam pad and on the side of the hammock, it was cold. Uh, So it wouldn't be a bad idea in really cold weather like in the teens, to take that so you have that added insulation. And also, if you find yourself needing to um, end up on the ground, you know, kind of cowboy camping under your tarp or something, then you would have that insulation from the ground uh, with that foam pad. But I think the most comfortable option, if you got to go either or, um, is is definitely the under quilt. Now, the only brand that I've ever used, so therefore I feel like I can really vouch for, is Warbonnet. I didn't see anything specifically on their website that guaranteed um, being brand universal for their underquilts. But knowing how the one that I had attached to my hammock, it just had um, like like bungee cord basically on the end. So I feel like you could fashion a carabiner and hook it up to your hammock. But I'm sure if you reach out to them and tell them what you're working with, and, you know, have them verify like, yes, this would work or no, it would not. Um, now, when you're looking at the War Bonnet website, you'll see that they have quilts that are already in stock and then under quilts that are customizable. Um, the difference in that is going to be, one, you get to control all the, the inputs um, if you do the customizable. But two, there's going to be a longer lead time. So um, the ones they have in stock will ship in one to two days. So it depends on, you know, how quick you want to get it. Their current lead time for um, the customized underquilts is one to two weeks. So it doesn't sound like you're in like a super big rush. Um, so you might want to do the customizable option. You get to uh, pick the material you would like. So the thickness of the threads or the, the density of the threads, denier. Um, so they have like a 20 denier nylon, a 15 denier, and a 10 denier. The 10 denier is going to be more lightweight than the 20 denier, but it's going to be less uh, abrasion resistant but when you're dealing with something like an underquilt it's not like you're sleeping on it so it's really not going to have as much wear and tear as a normal quilt would and they make normal quilts and sleeping bags sometimes out of tendineer so 
you know, I, that's what I would probably go with just because it would be more lightweight, but I'm more of a gram weenie than other people in, in some ways. <laughs> um, but then of course the color you get to pick the fill type, you can go with 850 power down or 900. Um, the 900 is going to be more lightweight cause it's just more, um, fluffy and insulating than the 850. So it takes less of it to insulate to the same temperature rating. And it looks like most of their quilt options go down, under quilt options go at least down to zero degrees. So that covers your need for down in the teens. Um, but anyway, you can get on their website and poke around. Uh, I'll give Jack that link to it's just warbonnetoutdoors.com. Um, but I think they're going to have what you need. They've got all sorts of different links. The Yeti that I used went from probably my knee area to my shoulder area. Um, it just helped trim off, you know, some, some weight. But if you want the full length, they have those too. So anyway, I hope that that helps. If any of the rest of y'all have any questions about backpacking, stuff on YouTube, etc., please get those questions into Jack and Thank you again, Daniel, for the question, and I hope you have fun backpacking, hunting, and camping this winter. Okay, with that, I want to go into my segment for today's episode and remind you guys that except for the uh, Tuesday episode that will be a live stream Bitcoin breakout episode, it will be all rewinds from this point forward until Tuesday of the next week while I'm up at the Self-Reliance Festival with Nicole Sauce, John Willis, Dr. Ken Berry, Nick Ferguson, all those good folks up there. Uh, anyway, um, and I also want to remind you one more time, tomorrow morning, 9.30 Central Standard Time, TSP Fall Workshop goes on sale. Be there, be square. That's how it's going to work. Make sure you show up and sign up if you want to come, because it should sell out in minutes yet again. Anyway, my segment today... Um, I made a graphic for this. It was a really long quote to make a graphic with, but I thought it was such a good quote that I wanted to talk about that I built a graphic. It's an old photo of Bill Mollison. And by the way, the last rewind in the series that's coming will be the the, uh, the episode I did called Remembering Bill Mollison from about five years ago when Bill passed away. Anyway, this photo is Bill with a very old car and is a, is a fairly young man. Uh, is, is the image that I put with a vehicle that he's leaning on with some stuff in it and... Uh, This is what he said. You can hit a nail on the head or cause a machine to do so and get a fairly predictable result. Hit a dog on the head and it will either dodge, bite back, or die, but it will never again react in the same way. We can predict only those things we set up to be predictable, not what we encounter in the real world of living and reactive processes. This is one of the most intellectually astute quotes that shows the true genius of Bill Mollison. Beyond even the world of permaculture that he is famous for. This is an engineering quote. This is a systems thinking quote. This is a scientific quote. At the broader scientific process and the flaws in modern uh, scientific philosophy. And that can be applied to agriculture or things like medicine. Like anywhere. And, and this is what Bill's really saying here. We have decided that the mechanistic view of the world can be applied to things that are not mechanistic. You got that? So if I am using nothing but pine board lumber, uh, one and a half by three and a half that we call a two by four, uh, from a specific type of tree, I know the hardness of that wood, I know the length of each piece of that wood, and I can conceivably build a robot that would frame houses with it. 
There's actually no reason, like, like, it's probably not worth it to do so, but there's no reason it can't be done. The hardness of that wood, the length of the nail, these are known things, how the ends will fit together, all of it. And, and we can be very mechanistic with that, which means once we design something, we can change the design and have a complete understanding of the result, what we call dynamic and static loads in building. So when I was in uh, computer cabling and stuff like that, some projects were so la large, you actually had to do load calculations on things like the suspension to say, like, are we going to put too much cable up there? How is this going to, when we add the cable weight plus all the equipment, how does this affect the floor? This is the static load, and what's the dynamic load? That's the stuff that comes in and out. Like, what is the, except, like, stuff like that. Like, all of that, we can get very scientific with in the way that we mean it when we say modern science. And we're not talking about the, the false marketed bullshit with, with the drug companies and stuff right now. Just, in general, scientists trying to do the right thing. And then we decide, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get scientific about growing beans or corn or wheat or what have you. And we say, and farmers today are trained this way, and they think this way. I've heard them say it recently when we're talking about fertilizer shortages. Like, you want me to tell you how much wheat we can get out of that field right there? It's X amount of you know this uh, chemical and X amount of that chemical times X amount of seed times X amount of water gives you X amount of bushels of wheat per acre. Okay. And then nature's like, okay, sure. Oh, you've wiped out the fungal system in your soil? And then our approach is, well, we'll just add more of the chemicals and bring the yield back up. And nature's like, I see what you did there. Okay, you'll get away with that for a while. And then all of a sudden we start to have failures. Or, gee, I don't feel like giving you as much rain this year. I think this is a La Nina year. Good luck with your plan now. Now, if we had created intrinsically diverse, dynamic soil systems with high carbon and organic matter in the soil with natural fungal hyphae, we can get through. We'll still have variation in that, but we'll get through it better. That's the comment about hitting the dog. You hit a dog. That dog might be like a very passive dog and just take it in the head and be like, dude, what the hell? You got to hit him again. See if he's going to just stand there and let you do it again. He's going to react differently. Every single natural process is that way. And you say, well, if I hit this dog, then he knows that he's getting hit if my hand looks this way, and if he's, he might bite me or run or cower or attack me, right, or flinch. But the next dog that hasn't been hit yet, there's no guarantee the second dog will react the way the first dog did at the first strike, and certainly not the second. Now we're going to play with, you know, Bacterial and fungal systems in the soil that way. There's a little, a little, there's quite a few more of those guys. You don't know how it's going to react. And in everything that we do in science, medicine, agriculture, etc., health today, we, we deny this reality. We have this cancer, we treat it with this re regimen. Okay, D does it always work out the same way? No. Well, and I understand to a degree that in, in some places doctors are just saying, well, 70% of the time this is the right play. And 95% of the time, untreated, this person will die. I understand playing those odds, but let's not pretend that that's not what we're doing. Let's not pretend that that's not what we're doing. Whenever we've had to make you know significant medical decisions, but that's always what we've driven it down to with doctors when they're like, well, you know, you have to make. I want odds. I want percentages. Then at least I know what I'm I'm deciding here. So I get it, but let's not pretend that we know.
Let's not pretend that something is, is seemingly simple is a layer of mulch upon soil is as predictable as a nail into a board because it isn't. And this is where we completely lose it when it comes to dynamic living systems in modern science. The idea of the scientific method is wonderful. To reduce the variability between an experimental and a control group to a single variable. Until we sterilize it down to only that variable and there's none of the other supporting components. So, if we say, if we take this one substance or one form of seed or one form of uh, water enhancer for the soil and we take two fields and we use it or we don't use it and we say it definitively does improve yields, has no effect or reduces yield. And then we feel very secure in our decision because we followed the scientific method we've had for hundreds of years. That's how we know that, that meat doesn't create uh, maggots, that we know that flies lay eggs. We, we put a cloth over the jar. I, you probably learned that in school. I did too. I think it's bullshit, but I think it's a good story. I think it's a good story to, to show how the method works. But if we're, we're looking at two fields that have been farmed for decades with conventional farming, they're devoid of a soil life web, and we're determining that this substance A makes things better, the same, or worse, we have no idea how that substance actually would perform if it were put into a field with a living soil food web or if it would even be necessary. When we're talking about how much fertilizer, how many pounds per acre to put down, we're, 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 we're dealing in a situation where that field probably has more nutrients sitting there than it would ever need to grow a, a, a rotation of crop. But we've now damaged the soil to the point where we have to put so much extra so that the plant can get what it needs because there's no soil life web, there's no exudate process at play working in combination with fungal hyphae to make it happen but we're just going to keep coming up with a new number. And we are arrogant enough to believe that this does not lead to absolute disaster in the end. Because it's where it leads. It's where it leads. I think to say that we can continue farming in America the way we are without massive disruption to our food supply and this is taking out bad years, this is taking out La Ninas, this is taking out droughts, it just par for the course, I think if we have 30 years left right now, continuing on course the way we are with a complete crash of the ecosystem itself, we're fortunate. 30 years sounds like a long time, but remember, this crash won't come like... This is a declining spiral across time, and we can see it right now. And I'm going to tell you right now, they haven't accepted this explanation, not most of them anyway. But the soil scientists and the United States Department of Agriculture know this. The people that work for NCRS know this. They know this, and they're doing what they can, where they can, as they can, within a system that is inherently flawed to change it. But they know that all they're doing is stemming the tide for a time, that eventually the moon will pull the ocean and the tide will go. You can put up some barriers to the tide, but eventually the tide will reach the barriers and it will come over. And it's like a death spiral of agricultural production. If there were only a way that we could carbonize soils 
and increase the soil food web to the point where the natural systems would be restored. If there was only a machine, I'm going to give you my dream machine to fix all of these fields. The dream machine would feed on something that grows there without us having to plant it. Something, something high in carbon and high in nutrient with a deep root base that would hold the soil firm. I think it's called grass. This solar-powered machine would take the grass and cut it by about one-third of its length before it moved on to the next section. And it would grind up the grass. And then it would moisten the grass and hold it at a temperature somewhere around 100 degrees Fahrenheit for about, oh, 24 to 30 hours. And then it would deposit it back onto the ground, wet and warm, where it would spread out and form a casing on top of it that would become hard. But the inside would remain moist for quite a time. And then the soil creatures could consume that and incorporate it into the soil. And this dream machine would operate on an ongoing basis with very little maintenance whatsoever. And at the end of its life, you could eat it. If it sounds like I'm talking about a ruminant like a cow or a sheep or a goat, it's because I am. That is the solution, a dynamic living element within the dynamic living system versus trying to drive nails by drilling seed into sterile soil. And it's not just there. There are so many areas of science and medicine that this sterilized approach has lost touch with the energetic life forces in the world that has actually been purged as hokum, that life energy actually matters. And I'll tell you how stupid it is. I'll tell you how stupid it is. When you start talking about energy and stuff like that, people start thinking about like swamis praying over. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the energy within your body. Here's how simple this is. Take a dead person who is capable of being respirated for a time, but they're dead. They're dead. Okay? They're not ever coming back. They're dead. You can mechanically move the heart and the lungs, but they're, I'm not talking about life. They're dead. Their life energy is gone. Okay? But you can keep them from, like, stinking and whatnot. You can even heat their blood. You can keep their, their arm alive, seemingly. Cut them. Cut their arm. They won't feel it. Take a person who just cut himself that's alive and make the same cut. Because don't cut the, the healthy person, right? Like, the healthy person cut themselves. Make another cut, the exact same cut. Now, give the dead person. Give the dead body any medicine, use stitches, do anything you can. See if that wound will heal. Five days later, before you embalm them and throw them in a tomb and stick them in the ground, compare it to the living person's wound. The living person's wound will probably, unless it was a serious injury, be very well healed in five days. Even with very minimal, minimal treatment. Dead guy's wound, take the stitches out, you pull it right apart. There's no healing. What does the healing There's all, we can explain blood clotting and cellular regeneration, but what does it? Our life energy, our life force. And then we're going to become masters of the world by denying the impact of life energy and life force. 
you can hit a nail on the head or cause a machine to do so and get a fairly predictable result. Hit a dog on the head and it will either dodge, bite back, or die, but it will never again react in the same way. We can predict only those things we set up to be predictable, not what we encounter in the real world of living and reactive processes. Bill Mollison, co-founder of Permaculture. With that, I'm going to sign off for the week. One more time, if you want to come to the TSP Fall Workshop, you can do that. If you get up early tomorrow, 0930 Central Standard Time, link will go in the Telegram group and channel both. Click the link, sign up, watch the video I put out earlier this week. If you haven't done so yet, be ready to go. It's going to sell out. And remember, you can always support the show by doing what? You're online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way